What is diabetes? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special clinician's roundtable on children's health. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Francine Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a distinguished professor of pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California head of the Center for Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Metabolism at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, California, and author of Diabesity, the Obesity Diabetes Epidemic that Threatens America and What We Must Do to Stop It. Dr. Kaufman, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Explain what led to your passion for childhood and adolescent diabetes. Well, I decided to do an endocrine fellowship. And then, of course, it's always whether you're going to do more diabetes and obesity or more of all of the rest of endocrinology. And somewhere along the way, diabetes just fascinated me. Plus, I had grown up with a grandmother who had diabetes when I was younger. And it turned out to be the perfect subspecialty in that we are really experiencing an epidemic of both obesity and diabetes in children. Please give us a Diabetes 101. Well, For most children, it's still type 1 diabetes, and particularly those under age 10, over 80% will get type 1. And I think we've really started to unlock some of the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes in understanding, first of all, some of the genes involved, the entire immunologic injury, what the main, at least apparent, antigenic responses are on the beta cell, and how this is actually rather a slow process and one is born with a you know, presumption of an intact beta cell mass with either the genes that confer risk or actually confer protection against the development of type 1 diabetes, and then a series of environmental triggers probably cause in that susceptible individual the immunologic injury that then destroys the beta cell population. And that we can actually kind of watch this progress over time And in a 10- or 12-year-old child who's developing type 1, the antibodies indicating the immunologic injury may be present a year or two or maybe even more before they end up with clinical diabetes. So when I went to medical school, and I think, you know, for those of us who've been out practicing probably more than 20 years, it was thought to be a rather acute illness. And now I think we've got really good data that there is an indolent character to this immunologic injury that's occurring over time until clinical presentation occurs because of just, at that point, fundamental loss of the beta cell mass. Now, type 2 diabetes is relatively new in pediatrics, and in the children over 11, it is accounting for more of diabetes overall in those populations than it did before. We've got all this data from the SEARCH trial, which has been a multicenter NIH trial looking at prevalent incident rates of diabetes. So type 2, which didn't exist before now in the Caucasian population, is accounting for still probably around 10% of diabetes in these older children. But in some of the other populations, particularly the Native American population, it's more than type 1. Asian and African American Still more type 1 even in these older children, but the percentages in the, you know, maybe 30% kind of range. So we are seeing more and more type 2. These children are obese. These children come from families with a lot of type 2 diabetes and a tremendous number of risk factors. And we need to learn how to treat them because we don't have data on most of these oral agents or the comorbidities. 
And we're learning a lot from the TODAY trial, which is another NIH-sponsored multicenter trial looking at how to treat incident-onset type 2 diabetes in youth. What is the prevalence? How many people do you estimate worldwide have diabetes? Well, in childhood, we estimate that it's probably around a half a million children worldwide have diabetes, but that in the developing world, we may be losing thousands, if not tens of thousands of children due to lack of insulin and lack of awareness, really, about type 1 diabetes in particular occurring in Africa and parts of Indonesia and Asia where you just don't think about type 1 diabetes, nor is the medical system in a lot of these countries got the wherewithal to deal with that kind of chronic disease. So it's about 500,000 kids around the world. There's about 160,000 in the U.S., about 16,000 new cases of diabetes in childhood a year. And even at those what sound like maybe low rates for some people, it turns out that it's one of the most common chronic diseases of childhood. What are the misconceptions about diabetes? Well, I think there are a lot of misconceptions, a lot of them held, obviously, by the lay public. You can catch diabetes. It's somebody's fault when they get diabetes. And even this type 2 diabetes in children, although we kind of, I think, blame the adult who ends up getting type 2 diabetes, in children, they've got just a probably a tremendous genetic load for this and an environmental kind of risk that is, is very high. And I don't think we need to blame these kids. And what we really need to do is catch them early enough to try to prevent type 2 diabetes, which gets to another NIH multicenter trial that's looking at actually a school-based intervention to try to fundamentally change the school environment to see if we can reduce risk factors for type 2 diabetes. And this is called the healthy trial. So we've got a lot of good research down, you know, down the pike, and hopefully it will inform us on both the prevention and the treatment side for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But there's, you know, a lot of myths. I think that probably the greatest myth is that, particularly in these children with type 2, that it's not such a terrible disease, don't worry about it, particularly in both the professional and, I think, the lay public, that you don't need to take so many medications. You particularly don't need to take insulin if you've got type 2 diabetes. And it actually turns out for type 2 in children, more than half end up treated when you just see what's going on in the clinical arena, and these are mainly treated in, you know, the diabetes centers for children around the country, that more than half actually are on insulin and that their disease is relatively severe, that they're both extremely insulin resistant and relatively insulin deficient, and that they take a fair amount of pharmacology to normalize glucose, normalize blood pressure, normalize cholesterol. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special Clinician's Roundtable on Children's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Francine Kaufman, Distinguished Professor of Pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, discussing childhood and adolescent diabetes. Dr. Kaufman, you coined the term diabesity. What do you mean? Well, I wish I had coined it. I actually didn't. I happened to be able to use it for my book title. But this was actually originally coined, and then the ex-surgeon general, C. Everett Koop, actually brought forth the terminology during his tenure and a little bit afterwards. So it was out there in the lexicon, and it seemed to really be the perfect title for the book I wrote, which was released by Bantam in, in 05. But it, it really is trying to show the connection between obesity and diabetes in the type 2 population. And then, of course, there turns out to be some potential connection even in the type 1 population that those patients, when they develop obesity, actually can become insulin resistant in addition to their insulin deficiency and become harder to manage for both 
the glucose standpoint and also all the other metabolic parameters, blood pressure and cholesterol. So there's a tremendous connection between glucose metabolism, lipids, risk for cardiovascular disease, risk for diabetes itself if you don't have it. And that term diabetes really kind of shows how intimately connected those two are. What are the environmental triggers? Well, the environmental triggers for type 2 are, you know, what we're now calling our obesogenic, and of course now there's this also new word, globesity, that environment. And our environment is fundamentally different than how we lived our lives three decades ago, where particularly children and adults have very little physical activity and certainly not an adequate amount of physical activity. They're glued to a screen for an excessive amount of time. And that we have a replete food supply, at least, you know, replete as far as calories are concerned, for most people on this planet. would never deny that there aren't areas in which people are still starving. But in the United States, we have a lot of calories out there every day for us all to consume, and that a significant number of these calories are really processed sugars, high fats, a lot of salt, and that the food's in the quantities we're able to get them and in the way we're actually consuming them lead to obesity and diabetes. For some of us, you know, depending on your gene load, may be an inevitable environment that we're living in. And, of course, poverty links to this because these sugar and salt and fat calories are cheapest. So if you're living in poverty, those are what you end up buying. You're rather nutrient deficient, but your needs are met if not exceeded with these kind of terrible calories and you end up obese and have a risk for the metabolic syndrome and for diabetes. Does misdiagnosis occur? Oh, misdiagnosis of diabetes occurs all the time um, in both children and in particularly adults. Particularly for type 2 diabetes, you know, the symptoms can be rather subtle and occurring over time so that there's not, like there is often in type 1 diabetes where many of our patients will say, Two weeks ago, she started wetting the bed, or two weeks ago, you know, I needed to get up and go to the bathroom three times at night. In type 2, it's just more gradual, so you don't necessarily pick up on the symptoms as quite as much. And, you know, in addition to, obviously, the polyurea and polydipsia and the weight loss, which a lot of people are rather excited about, I lost a little bit of weight, isn't this great? A lot of patients have tingling, have visual problems, and still don't link that to being signs and symptoms of diabetes or particularly, you know, skin lesions. And it can take quite some time. And in, even in pediatrics, we often see the child having gone to a healthcare provider a number of times before the diagnosis of diabetes is made. How can listeners learn more? Well, there's a number of wonderful websites. Diabetes.org is the ADA website that has both a professional and a lay component. And the professional component has, you know, all kind of signals to all the latest literature. Probably the most effective uh, set of strategies is on the National Diabetes Education Program website, nedp.org. And on that, the National Diabetes Education Program, you can find small steps, big rewards, a program that you can roll out to your patients on prevention. It's got a lot about treating to target the linkage of diabetes and heart disease and what your patients need to do, and obviously, in addition, what you need to know and what you need to do for your patients. So a lot of the translation of all these important research endeavors on the NDEP website. And then, of course, there's a million lectures you can go to all day long about diabetes treatment. Tell us about Camp Chinook. Camp Chinook, and there are camps actually across the country and across the globe for children with diabetes. And these camps actually do a lot to promote the psychosocial issues around diabetes. And some of these camps are for families. We have family camps. There's 
also now kind of young adult camps for people with diabetes. And it's the same kind of as a support group where, you know, I think probably the biggest thing we face, and there's a lot of us interested in addressing this as well, there's an international initiative called DAWN, Diabetes, Attitudes, Wishes, and Needs, addressing the psychosocial issues of uh, what happens when somebody's diagnosed with diabetes. And when we address those, the ability for people to actually more effectively manage their disease. So camps are something like that where kids come together and, you know, it's finally a place on the planet where it's the norm to have diabetes and you can realize that you're not alone and, and help kind of face that isolation you feel when you're diagnosed. Dr. Kaufman, thank you for joining us today to discuss childhood and adolescent diabetes. Thank you. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to a special Clinician's Roundtable on Children's Health on ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.